Hey everyone, welcome to the Mike Rosehart Show, live from my iPhone in the basement. Today we are going to talk about passive income for the start of this stream. And we're going to talk about what it really means to have passive income and how, like the title suggests, you might need to quit real estate investing in order to have passive income. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if you have a real estate portfolio, it is darn near impossible to do it well and do it properly and do it passively. Landlords have a duty to their tenants to maintain the building effectively, to ensure the managers are doing a good job, to ensure uh, a whole bunch of things are done at the end of the day. No matter how good of a manager you have, it all falls back on you as an owner. And owning real estate is like owning a business. They're almost the same thing. And I, like, I know people like to say real estate investing is like owning stocks or real estate investing is like, and by the way, I'm when I say real estate investing, I'm talking about active real estate investing. So um, not buying a piece of land that you do nothing to. I'm talking about um, developing or owning rental properties where you put tenants in, where you're providing a service and you're getting cash flow. Because you can invest in real estate in a broad spectrum of different ways. One of which you could buy land and do nothing. In which case, you're like appreciation investing. Um, shut up, be honest. Um, I need to get a haircut, guys. It's the it's truth. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Hey, South London, good to see you on as well. So I'm talking today about passive income and how basically, oh, thanks, Jason, appreciate that. We are going to, I don't know if anyone's following my Instagram, but at Mike Rosard, if you follow my Instagram, you'll know that I'm trying to keep these streams down to about 30, 35 minutes now. I'm gonna try to lean them down a little bit, try to be more concise, and for a number of reasons, it, it just makes sense. There will be times where I'll, I'll crank it back out to the hour, hour and a half. We've sometimes done streams that were two hours long. Uh, I'm not afraid to go long on my streams. People know I, I can talk forever. But anyway, so I wanted to start this stream with, I was thinking about the ultimate sort of retirement strategy. And I think, hey Trevor, good to see you on. I think that the main thing that a good retirement strategy has in it is the ability to scale down whenever you want. So instantaneous scale down. And I think that real estate as a business, right? So if you have rental properties and you have multiple tenants and you have multiple rents you're collecting, multiple units you're providing for, the maintenance schedule you have to maintain, bills you've got to pay, et cetera, and so forth. Tenants move out, you got to renovate, you got to keep your property up. You have a duty, an obligation. If you don't do this, they will take you to the landlord tenant board, right? And then you'll be involved. Like it's, it's an actual business. And so most of us, when myself included, went into this not investing for a business. I didn't want a business. I didn't want to have employees, like a property maintenance guy that cares for my property and a property manager and a leasing placing guy and a contractor. I don't want to have all those employees. Even if it's completely outsourced and you do nothing, you have a business with employees, subcontractors, whatever. And they might be independent contractors. They're not legally employees, but it's like having employees. You have someone you're accountable to. You're accountable to your tenant. You're accountable to the bank. You're accountable to all the people that work for you. At a minimum, you're sending e-transfers, you're managing the, you know, the sites and things like that. That's a pain. That's a lot of work. Um, if you have a lot of properties anyway, if you have 10, 20, 30, 40 properties, even managing the managers and the people doing all the work becomes a business, becomes a job in and of itself. You're CEO of your own portfolio. Now that's not passive. 
like owning a, you know, a stock portfolio that you didn't rebalance, that you just held and collected dividends, that would be passive. Private lending, if you were, and by the way, private lending isn't even passive. I've had people you know, reach out and say, I just want to completely passive, this and that. It's not even passive because in the private lending space, you have to prospect leads. You have to find someone who wants to borrow your money and you have to vet them. And in fact, vetting someone who you're gonna lend money to, that's a huge process. You gotta analyze the deal that you're going to lend on. So you have to analyze their property. You have to appraise it yourself, look at comparables, look at the rental income. You've gotta look at their entire portfolio, their net worth, um, their income, their leases. That process takes days. It's actually more work probably to have all the calls associated and all the work associated with putting together a deal where you lend your own money out on a property than it is to place a tenant in a rental property. Now, I would argue private lending is a lot more passive. It's like one and done. You fund the mortgage, you're good for a year, you get a nice return. It might take you a day of time to prospect uh, a lead and generate that lead and then take that all the way to the finish line. You'll have several people who will call you and say, hey, uh, you know, we're looking to you know, borrow money for X flip and then they sign a commitment letter and at the end of the day, they don't want your money so you don't fund, they find money elsewhere. So you waste all your time checking out their property or you waste all your time analyzing all their finances to then lend to them and they decide they don't want to borrow the money, right? There's a lot of potentially wasted time in the private lending space too. And it's a business in and of itself, like finding leads, finding people to borrow your money, you know, good qualified leads who have good qualified real estate deals who are gonna pay you interest, et cetera, and so forth, and making sure the deals they're investing in are good deals, all of that work. And then the bookkeeping associated with collecting the rent each month and you know, managing your bank account, managing the business that you set up now to do that, right? That's a business, it's all, these are all active streams. They're not passive. Everyone thinks that like, hey, you know, I got a bunch of money and I can just be passive and enjoy life. The truth is, one, doing that is really boring. Um, you need something to keep you actively, um, your mind actively challenged, I think. So you do want something to do when you're in retirement, but on the same end of that spectrum, you don't want so much going on that you can't take a couple weeks off and enjoy your time. For instance, having a, a real estate portfolio like I used to have, and I'm working on scaling it down. People know that I'm, you know, my target is with JVs and my own properties. I'd like to have about uh, 15 properties in our personal name, about five in the corp, and then about 10 JVs would be like my ideal, no more than that. Uh, I'm looking to scale down the number of properties because each property on average is about a half hour to an hour a week if you have decent managers in place. You're spending time at least once a week checking in on your property. You might have to micromanage a little bit of a unit turnover, micromanage a little bit here and there, pay some bills, deal with some things that pop up. Some weeks there's nothing. Some weeks there's three hours of work with a rental license you gotta deal with. And you as the owner have to go in or, you know, there's certain things that pop up. And as a, as a real estate investor, you might go 10 weeks of nothing and then one week where three units all came available and you're renovating three units to turn them over, you're changing the paint and the floors because new tenants are moving in. And now that becomes, you know, several hours um, of, of work. You know, it could be a dozen, 30 hours. It could be a lot more than that, depending on, you know, how involved you're gonna be, right? And how much you wanna pay to outsource. And so it's one of those things where I think, sorry, dog's kind of playing with uh, the door there. But one of the, no Milo, you can't bring that big stick in the house. No Milo. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that's what I wanted to share today was that go into real estate investing, knowing it's a business, build systems, try to make it so that it's as passive as it can be, but realize that the ultimate level after, in my opinion, anyway, this is just an opinion, but the ultimate level after you've built up enough wealth from the active businesses is to move to completely passive. And I think that having a huge real estate portfolio is difficult to be completely passive. 
I'm okay being a little bit active. That's just, I, I don't mind. But at a certain point, too many properties becomes a job, just managing all the people working at the properties. And that's you doing nothing. That's you not lifting a finger to do a drill or, or anything. You don't have drilling anything, you're not painting, you're not even placing tenants. You're just managing at a high level, making sure that the ad, the leasing manager's placing is decent, making sure that you know the people who are the maintenance guys corresponding with the property managers, corresponding with your leasing agent, who's corresponding with your contractor for the unit turnovers, and just making sure all of that in the city, you know, the city is gonna be involved with the rental license program and making sure that it's all moving like a nice orchestrated symphony. And when you first buy a property, there's a ton of extra work involved in stabilizing it, but once it's stabilized, then in an ideal world, it's fairly passive. Now, it's semi-active. I, I say that because if you, have, if you ask anyone who has 20 or 30 properties, they're spending, it's like a part-time job, right? It's a part-time business. It's, um, it's something to think about, I think. Um, another thing I'm gonna share on this stream, just this week, I was thinking about, four, I think it was what, two, three days ago, I was reading an article, and listening to a, actually listened to another YouTube video as well about how there's a shift. That's annoying. Someone's just calling me. Oh, see, there's an example of like, that was a, a contractor who just uh, wanted to get an e-transfer. And that's an example of right now, live on my stream, I just had someone try to call me and get an e-transfer. And it's over $50, 50 bucks. They can't wait an hour to get paid. Now I would love it if they would contact the property manager and get paid to the property manager. But just because they happen to have my number, they try to call me and go direct, right? Because they want their money now. And this is part of, I guess, when you're building your business and building your systems, I've chosen $25 an hour contractors who can't go two days without being paid, right? And that's an example of where, you know, when you're looking at the triangle of the quality of work, reliability that they show up, and then their, their cost, you can't have all three, right? So if you want decent reliability and decent quality, and low cost, well, you're gonna to have to pay them all the time, they're gonna be annoying, the reliability is gonna go down, right? So that's something that you just kind of have to balance. And so for me, I'd rather keep my costs down, my profits up in my properties, and as a result, invest my time, right? But if I were to completely get passive, I could bring a contractor in for $90 an hour to fix things. And that contractor would be fine waiting two, three weeks, or whenever I pay them whenever I have time, right? They don't, they don't harass me, they don't bug me. And so it's a, it's a level of what you're willing to pay for, right? Uh, that was a great example. I like that that kind of just happened in the wild there for you guys to see. But um, yeah, next question. I guess I'll go to the questions. I have a five-year fixed mortgage of three and a half years left with Scotiabank. Is there any way to avoid the breakout fees if I refinance the bigger mortgage to pull some more equity out? Anthony, yeah, oftentimes the banks will waive the breakout fees if you agree to stay with them. So the approach would be, hey, I got an approval at TD and I'm gonna move to TD Bank, my mortgage at Scotiabank, and I'm gonna pay you guys a breakout fee and be done with you. But they don't wanna lose your business and they know you're going for a bigger mortgage. So you go to them and say, hey look, looking to get an extra 100 grand in equity pulled out. In most cases, they'll do like a blend program where maybe you're stuck at the old interest rate, but the new money you're getting is no breakout fee and you might get the new money at a great interest rate. So you might be stuck and locked into your old term with your old rate, but you can get the new money for no breakout fee. You can go for a bigger mortgage. Uh, with the same bank. So that's something you can do, um, totally. Pull the money out tax-free. It's one of the only things that keeps you from selling all my properties is, is the efficiency of a refinance from a tax perspective. I'll give you an example. I have a property that I bought for like 190-ish grand and it's worth like 400 today. So if I were to sell that property today, I'd have like, well, I've done some renovations to it over time and so my cost base is probably not 190 anymore. It's probably like, I'm just guessing, 250, 260. But still, there's like 140 grand, let's say there, in capital gain 
over the last five and a half years that I've owned that property, as an example. I probably won't sell that property because my tax bracket is so high, there's no incentive for me to sell and you know, on that hundred and something thousand, lose 30, 40,000 potentially in, in tax. I don't know, I have to do the exact math on that, but you know, the capital gains tax by 25% in my bracket. So that's something to consider when I can just refinance and get the same amount out. Like if I literally sold the property or refinance, the amount I'm getting out is a, you know, maybe $30,000 difference. It's so close that it's not worth going through the struggle of selling the property because the tax implications associated with that. So sometimes it makes sense to refinance your properties, even though they're a headache. And so for me, what I've done is try to put in better procedures, better people in place. And this is something I'm struggling with all the time. It's hard to find good managers. I've come across great contractors, great managers um, that are priced well, that do good quality work. The problem is they either increase their price a lot or they move on to another industry. And this happens a lot. Contractors will move out west or they'll you know, take up a new business or whatever, or something will happen and they're no longer at the property. They'll make a big mistake and people make mistakes, right? Like a property manager, will, I'll give you an example. I had a great property manager who made a big mistake and flooded a whole basement. It was 100% their fault. Um, and I was upset that like their negligence for 48 hours left all the water in a basement that I did. This is a long time ago. And the lamb back when I used to put laminates in before vinyl plank and all the laminates were messed up. Now they, in hindsight, looking back, they weren't actually that bad of a property manager, probably better than the people I have now. And so I think now in hindsight, they were a good property manager and they were affordable, but they made a big mistake. And so I, I terminated the relationship with them because I'm like, hey, any property manager that will leave my property for 48 hours and do nothing and let the floors get destroyed, um, you know, they're, they're not a good property manager, but they were actually good in all other aspects. And so I should have taken that, you know, one bad example and said, hey, you know, uh, it's okay that, that you made a big mistake. I'll eat this $10,000 loss because I know you're a good manager going forward. I'm gonna invest in you. And so it's one of those things where no one's perfect. So you're gonna have to accept that your property manager is gonna make a mistake. It's gonna be a long weekend. They're gonna be busy with their girlfriend, whatever, out of town at their cottage. They're gonna ignore their phone. They're gonna let your property get destroyed for a weekend. They're human. That happens even to a great property manager. Maybe they left their buddy in charge or one of their employees in charge and they don't care either or they don't know what they're doing. They go there and they walk away. Um, but that, that's the kind of stuff happens, right? And so in your real estate business, you have to sort of build out ways to make it as passive as you can. And the truth is the more you pay, so less cash flow you're willing to have. Like if you just put a line item on your, on your uh, income statement for your property, say $500 a month for property management, you'd have the best management ever. There'd never be any issues like that I just brought up. It's when you pay a hundred bucks a month for your property management that that kind of stuff happens, right? You, you cheap out on one area, try to get more cash flow, you get burned in another area. So it's just, just trade-offs. Um, if you fully outsource, and, and I mean fully outsource and bring in the best of everyone into your property, probably what'll happen is you won't have much positive cash flow, a couple hundred bucks a door, which to me isn't worth the stress and the aggravation and the risk associated as such. I believe, I want to say two points. One, I believe that we're going into a period of low appreciation. I think over the next few years, we're gonna, we've topped out, we're getting darn near beyond what I think is reasonable. 20% year over year growth in the London area, in some pockets, 25% surrounding London. That's not sustainable. That's 25% growth is $500,000 properties worth like $650,000. That isn't right. It makes no sense in, in one year for that to happen. Um, the last five years, things have been doubling, right? So it's just, it's a bit unsustainable. I think that we should, as real estate investors, be banking on zero appreciation for the next five years. In the 80s and 90s, there were, there were periods in the 90s where for like six years, there was no appreciation, none. So banking your numbers as a real estate investor, zero appreciation for five years. Then 
price in fully outsourced on your real estate business, like a really good property manager, it's gonna charge you 12% of rents, you know, a really, really good one, you know, price in a really good contractor at 50 bucks an hour, and what do you have? Do you actually have positive cash flow? And if the answer is no, and there might not be any appreciation for the next five years, doesn't make sense to do real estate investing in this capacity. Maybe it makes sense to do some flipping or some value adding, or maybe it makes sense just to lend, right? And, and that might be a better way, or there are other ways to invest your money and get a better return than in real estate once you adjust for your time and your stress and your risk. Okay, back to the questions. Anthony's question was the first one we answered, and so the answer is yes to that question. Hey, John. Hey Darren, uh, hey Mike, I have a single family home that I'm adding a basement suite to. Is it worth putting in a separate washer dryer for each unit? Darren, you have to run the numbers and look at the space. Um, for instance, if in your kitchen there was a place you could add laundry or a small closet that wouldn't take away from the rentability of the unit, I would say it's a huge yes because a unit with laundry is a huge plus. You can get 50 bucks more a month at least for having laundry. Dishwasher is another one you get 25 to 50 bucks a month more for having a dishwasher, it's relatively cheap to put in laundry. You're talking thousand bucks for a stackable machine and then maybe 1500 bucks to rough it in, depending on the location of where you're trying to put your laundry. Hopefully it's close to uh, you know, some plumbing lines. Hopefully it's close to you know, the panel such that you can get you know, electrical to it. Sometimes you have to put gas because you can't get the electrical to it. You don't want to destroy the existing drywall. There's a whole bunch of ways to get creative with putting in laundry. Uh, in most cases, I would say yes, separate laundry makes sense. In some cases, it makes sense to put like a laundry room in at the bottom of the door, uh, only because, you know, there's a space reason. Like you can imagine a layout where it's a two bedroom and it's just big enough to be a two bedroom, but there's not enough room to eco to closet for laundry unless one of the rooms loses a closet. And so in that case, I would say having two bedrooms with closets is much better than having one bedroom with a closet, one bedroom, no closet, and then laundry. So in some cases, it, it makes sense to put laundry in. I don't I haven't seen the suite, but probably if you could squeeze in a stackable somewhere, that would make sense. You would get that return back in almost all cases. Okay. Trevor says, did you hear about the Fannie and Fetty adding a 1.5K refi fee? These low rates don't seem like they will last. Creditors will demand more. I haven't heard about that, but I'm sure lenders are tagging on, that kind of stuff seems reasonable. They'd be tagging on uh, fees to refinance and things like that. Run your numbers. like. In this interest rate environment in Canada here, you can get a 1.59 five-year fixed rate now. So a 1.59 five-year fixed rate, um, I've seen some even a little bit below 1.5 if it's a one or two-year fixed. Ratespy.ca is a great place to go. Check that out. Ratehub too is decent. You can see what some of the best lenders are offering right now. So definitely, I think that the spread the lenders are getting is a bit, bit tight right now. And yeah, I mean, we're in the lowest interest rate environment we've ever been in. So that's kind of blessed, I guess, for any sort of business investment at all. If you're, you're refinancing a business, buying a business, borrowing to buy shares or stocks, uh, borrowing to lend out to people, or borrowing to buy real estate, any of that where you use leverage or where you can borrow, we're doing better right now. The business is, is you know stronger than ever. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a catalyst, I would say, or, or a driver for what's happening at the real estate prices. But let's remember that when times improve, when economic times improve, the Bank of Canada will basically raise interest rates again, so they have room to you know, contract them in times of recession. And so right now, they're trying to stimulate the economy. That's why interest rates are so low. Once the economy is stimulated and everyone's you know, back to work and things are good, interest rates will rise, and the value of real estate will proportionally fall. And so 
that's likely what will happen. Um, but you know, I can't break the future. All I can tell you is that based on past economic indicators, that is what has happened. That would make the most logical sense. Brian says, hi Mike, I hope you mentioned on how to get a cheap phone plan. Any advice on how to get, oh, you have mentioned how to get a cheap phone plan. Any advice on how to get cheap internet? Brian, there used to be so many loopholes to get cheap Bell or Rogers here in Ontario. And there were so many resellers who would just resell Rogers lines for like 40, 50 bucks a month for the gigabit packages. Those guys, because of COVID, have all shut down. Rogers stopped doing a lot of their reselling programs. Same with Bell. So it's been tough to get cheap internet right now. Um, there are still like third-party resellers like start.ca and like the tech savvies of the world and the, um, I guess the, what are they? Clary, Claritel, Caritel, I think is one of them. Uh, it's a whole bunch of them that, that do it uh, for 50, 60 bucks a month for internet. Um, I'm currently on, I think I pay like 50 bucks a month for my internet. It's not the best package. I probably could do better, uh, but something to think about, I guess. Um, I guess look look out for. I haven't really been looking for the best deals with COVID. It's been really difficult again because Rogers wasn't doing in-person installs. They weren't trying to to move people off legacy plans. So a lot of those really good deals that existed that third parties were reselling uh, don't exist right now. So it's tough. But as far as cell phones go, uh, you know I've mentioned public mobile. Message me and I'll give you my code so you can jump on the public mobile. They use Telus Towers. It's the best reliable service anywhere in rural Canada and the metropolitans. It's fantastic. It's not like Freedom Mobile or like the wind company that were the signals crap all over. It, they use Telus Towers. So public mobile is my absolute favorite. They have no call center. So the only way you can do things is online. But I pay 30 something dollars a month for like, I think I have like six gigs of five and a half, six gigs of data, unlimited calling, international texting, I text China, text US, whatever. Like I have texting anywhere. Um, so it's fully loaded plans for like 30 something dollars a month with TELUS towers. So I love public mobile, they're owned by TELUS. Uh, I like them a lot. I get a buck off a month if you join and give my referral code. I think we each get like a gig of data too. So not that I'm like super incentivized, but everyone I know is on public mobile. And if they aren't, I'm like, why are you not on it? Even if you use someone else and take someone else's referral code, you should definitely look them up. Oh, Lisa says, should we sell? We're all gonna feel it in a year to come. Lisa, I think that now would be potentially a good time to sell. I am looking to sell a few properties off where it makes sense. Um, where I'm not selling, I'm refinancing. So I'm taking a chance to lock in a nice high appraisal and pull out as much equity as I possibly can without any tax implications. So definitely refinance right now. It's the cheapest interest rates in history and values are the highest they've ever been. So it's a great time to pull any equity out of your property while you still can. Uh, and so you'd have all that cash at your disposal in a recession to then double down, right? So pull the equity out either through sale or through refinance. William, good to see you on. Good evening. Ace of Spades says, can you talk about porting a mortgage specifically when there's a difference between the property values? Thanks, Mike. Love the weekly streams. Thanks, Ace. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I could talk about porting, um, month, porting the mortgages and things like that. So with Porting a mortgage, effectively all you're doing is, well, it depends how you're gonna port it. So if you already have a larger charge registered by the bank you're at now, you don't need to port the mortgage at all. You could just refinance and pull more equity out and it wouldn't necessarily need to be really ported at all. The lenders will sometimes use the term porting as in like they'll move your current term left. Let's say you have like in a five year term, you have three years left and you were locked in at 3% before, they might port that rate and that term and then give you the new, an advance on the new refinance amount for you know a 2% interest rate 
with another $100,000, right? So you'd have like a blended mortgage. Now a port, as far as like if you're buying another property, they would, yeah, effectively port your current mortgage balance, your current terms onto a new property. Where there's a challenge is if you had a $300,000 mortgage and now you own, your new property is you know, significantly smaller and can't accommodate that size mortgage, maybe you can only qualify for 80%. Well, I guess 80% loan value is pretty typical because the maximum most lenders will do. So 80% loan value on the new property might be say 250,000. So your new mortgage is $50,000 less. One thing I like to do when that situation arises is most of your mortgages, if you look at the fine print, allow a prepayment. So you can put a 20% a year prepayment on the balance of your mortgage. So I'll just pay down mortgage down, you know, the $50,000 without any penalties because you have a 20% prepayment penalty you can do each and every year um, without any penalties. So you can just pay down that old mortgage, then port it and have no breakout fees at all. But if you had to port it and it was smaller, they do a smaller percentage breakout fee for how much of the mortgage you're actually breaking out of, right? If you ported 250,000 of the $300,000 mortgage, then 50,000 of it probably be at a prorated breakout fee, which would be minor, you know, a few hundred dollars or something. So yeah, it can make good sense to port your mortgage over. As again, porting your mortgage requires you stay with the same lender, you have to get reapproved. Uh, it's a whole new application and you're moving that to, um, yeah, move that to your, to your property. Execulink is $50 a month for unlimited. Now I'm talking about having really good quality internet. Like I'm looking for, you know, a few hundred, uh, like usually the gigabit type packages is what I'm more um, looking into just cause I need a higher, most of my properties need, you know, the duplexes. And so I need a fast internet to be able to accommodate all the people or their student rental, or in my own case, I like to have the fastest internet I possibly can. And typically those resellers, you know, right now they don't have the fastest packages available. They might, I don't know. You'd have to look at them and take a good look and see what they have to offer. To be honest, my time, like I think about the value of my time at a couple hundred dollars an hour, and it almost never makes sense for me to be shopping for cheaper internet. Um, to save 10 or $20 a month, it really isn't worth my time. Uh, it was before, it just, nowadays I should just do a coaching call or you know, spend some time doing some other value add activity because my time is literally isn't worth saving $10 a month. But there was a time where I would really be hunting for that cheapest internet. Do you need a rental license for an owner occupied in London? Uh, no, unless you have a separate legal unit. Like if it was a duplex, then you would need a license for that other unit you're not living in, unfortunately. Uh, if you rent also more than three bedrooms, so three bedrooms or less in your house, you don't need a rental license. More than three bedrooms in your house, and you technically need a rental license. So that's basically how it works. So if you had a you know, six bedroom house and you lived in three bedrooms and you rented three out, you would not need a rental license. But if it was a legal duplex, then you would need a rental license here in London. If you're not living in the property, then you would probably need a rental license as well if you're going to rent it out. Next question, what is the best way to refinance a rental property if you own entirely in cash and don't have a job or any active income? The bank's giving me a hard time even though it's owned in cash. Darren, the problem is lenders don't wanna lend on net worth anymore. They don't care that you're rich. For some reason, a job that you could lose at any minute is the most valuable thing uh, to the lender. I don't know why, that's just the way the lenders are right now, but they don't wanna lend on net worth in most cases. There are exceptions. RBC used to have a high net worth program, Bank of Montreal does too, and Scotia does. Now, I'm told that Scotia, you need a million liquid on your refinance. So a million liquid plus the equity in your property, which is a lot, but that's the program they have where they'll use every dollar over a certain amount is counted as a dollar of income. So that's how the high net worth programs work. Now, most people don't fall into that because who has a million dollars liquid and at their disposal, right? So I'm working towards that so I can get some more mortgages uh, in the future. But yeah, I mean, it is tricky. If you don't have active income, you gotta go to the B lenders or find a way to architect active income. 
I wish I had a good answer for you. There are lenders in the B space who love, you know, the rental income. They love, you know, landlords and they're willing to use that rental income as your active income and allow you to refinance. So look for those B lenders. They might come with a 4% interest rate, but it's worth it to pull the cash out in many cases. So that's where I would look, Darren. Lisa says, house is listed for 1.4 last year, now sold for a million 50. Mortgage broker, big banks won't do it. Just gotta pay the points. Wow, um, that sounds terrible. In most markets, the real estate market is up. So it depends on which market you're in. I don't know, I don't have a lot of context there, but um, looks like big banks won't do it. Okay, I don't know. You have to look at the context of that. Maybe there's an income qualification thing there or, or something more to that story and that's unfortunate to hear. Um, one hypothesis I have too, I just wanted to kind of share, was in the large metropolitans like Vancouver, Toronto, New York, um, LA. I think there's gonna be a shift of people moving away from the large metropolitans. A lot of the desire for a large metropolitan is, is fading as people no longer need to come into the office. So we're realizing, you know, everyone from investment bankers to, you know, office workers are realizing that they are more productive working from home. They don't need to come into the office. They don't need time to commute. They don't wanna waste all that. And they get more done working from home and they enjoy their lives more. And companies can't force workers back because of COVID and so, People who left for a month or two from Toronto are now saying, I don't ever need to come back. I can move to London and enjoy my life in London. Uh, a lot of the lure from Toronto was that I could go out and have these great, you know, the best clubs, the best restaurants, but most of those are shut down and there is no social interaction right now. So there's, there's no advantage to being in the big city when you're stuck inside your house, social distancing. And so I think there's gonna be a huge allure going forward as we live in this new like antivirus world. There'll be more viruses beyond COVID, I'm sure for forever and ever, it's just human, that's the reality we live in now. These labs have created so many viruses and mutations that eventually gonna, a bunch of them are gonna get out. And I think that's natural for us to wear masks now going forward. And it's natural for us to expect a social distance. What that means is large congregated areas of millions of people living all together, no longer a thing. I think that we're gonna be able to connect virtually. And so people are gonna spread out. There's gonna be this trend of people moving away from the cities. So if you have a house right in downtown Toronto, or in Toronto, Vancouver, you know, New York, I think the value of like, rents are already falling. House prices, as soon as interest rates come back up, house prices are gonna fall too. So I think that, especially in the large metropolitans, so I'm actually bearish. I would actually short like Bay Street, Wall Street, all the real estate in there. I'd be willing to short that on, you know, a five or 10 year term. I think that long-term we're gonna see it be relatively flat. There's gonna be more supply, especially in the commercial space, in the, you know, retail and the, um, cause everyone's shopping online and in the, you know, in the commercial office space. I think that also is a place where it's going to suffer quite a bit. And I think that long-term we're going to see, we're going to see a lot higher cap rates, which means prices are going to fall. Um, so get ready for that. I think that if you own real estate in that space, you should sell. Um, yeah, that's me speculating. I've never liked real estate in the downtown cores anyway, because cash flow has always been terrible, but now there's going to be negative appreciation too. So it's like, there's no reason to own it. it. It's shit for cash flow, and it's terrible for long-term appreciation. So why would you own that? Um, yeah, that's my thought. You have a property in Toronto, it may not be as desirable in three years. Can you talk about porting a mortgage? I did that question already. Okay, so I found my, my place again, there you are. Hey Chris, how you doing? 
Uh, Ilya says, can you buy a property with mostly physical cash? Of course you could. Um, oh, that's a good question, actually. You, you got a good point, Ilya. I think that um, there might be some anti-money laundering rules around depositing cash. I think it has to go into a bank account. You cannot close a property without the cash changing hands through it. That's not true. I guess a private seller, like in theory, you, you could. Like you come to me and, and give me a pile of $200,000 cash and I could sell you the house for a dollar. And we go to the lawyer and I transfer a dollar into the lawyer's name and the, and the title changes, right? If I want it to. So um, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you, you you'd have to find a private seller. Through the MLS, I think you have to go through lawyer, typically you go through the lawyer's trust account. So that money would have to go into an account to be deposited into the lawyer's trust account. But yeah, two private individuals could could trade, you know, cash for for the title of their, their real estate property. So yeah, you could buy property in physical cash if you wanted to. Now there'd be some money laundering, you know, issues if a lawyer was involved, they'd probably ask where the money's coming from. Is it, you know, involved in any drug, whatever stuff. Milo, don't shake my camera, get out of here. Such a little bugger, I should have put him on the side. Okay, next questions. Hey Mike, does student debt OSAP affect mortgage eligibility? Yes, it does. It goes into your debt service ratios. Is it looked at the same as other debt? Uh, no, it's looked more favorably than other debt. Um, but I would say that, does it affect your ratios? Yes. There are payments you're gonna have to make to OSAP and those payments are going to go into your overall uh, affordability calculations and they're gonna use up some of your available income to service that debt. Um, yeah, so it does affect you negatively. Yes, 100%. If your goal is to get invested in real estate and build wealth fast, you should not go to school. <laughs> uh, that will slow down your path to becoming wealthy. The extra added income takes a long time from your day job. Your higher income you're gonna get from your day job at a university um, than if you just went into a job at a school making a little bit less because you'd, one, you'd have four years extra experience and four years of raises, and two, you'd have all those years of income added up, and three, you'd have no debt. So the opportunity cost is just so large going to school, it, it mathematically doesn't make a lot of sense. Hi Mike, can you sell your home right now even if COVID is happening, still have a tenant renting? Yeah, of course you could. Um, I'm selling properties right now. I know lots of people who are buying and selling property right now. Yep, totally fine. And if you give notice right now, uh, they have to let uh, the people in. If you have a home inspection or something, they have to let them in. If you give proper notice, they just probably want to leave the unit. So they might have to go outside for a minute while the other people went through. I mean, it's up to the tenant. Lobster Espionage says, also had 15% interest in the 90s. That's not true. In the 80, in the late 80s, you had 15% interest. In the early 90s, you had like 8 to 9% interest mostly. So yeah, the interest rates were so high, inflation was so high, and real estate prices were like flat. So what that means is your property is actually depreciating six or seven percent a year in buying power. Owning real estate in the early nineties in Toronto was a terrible proposition. There was not that good of cash flow and your property was losing value over time for like a series of like five years. All these videos people are making on real estate being so great. I can't wait for that cycle to come back when people are owning million dollar houses in Toronto and they're like, hey, my house is worth 850 now. It's worth 800 now and I got no cash flow. Like those are gonna be great videos to watch. Um, only because we've seen so much rah-rah, positive, positive, everything's growing. It's good to see real estate investors go through a recession because that's where the good real estate investors, you can tell. Uh, the bad ones, you know, they'll, they'll sink. But the good ones, you'll see them pivot and you'll see them grow. And that's just, I think it's more entertaining watching 
in this market, bad flippers look good. And so it's just not fun. Everyone's winning. And so there's just, you can't tell who's actually good. But yeah, I think that the, the gravy train we've been on has been coming to an end. Okay, I'm at the 35 minute mark and I promised I'd keep my streams short. So we're gonna go for another four minutes. At the 40 minute mark, I'm gonna end the stream. Good evening, Dia How To. Is it reasonable to pay $10,000 mortgage penalty to refinance and get 530K rental property? I mean, I have from the numbers, I don't know. If it's a situation in front of me, if you're buying the same type of property, the same types of cash flow, it might not make sense to pay the breakout fee. If there's taxes associated on top of that breakout fee, it might not make sense. If your new mortgage is 25% lower interest rate, it might make sense. I don't know, you have to run the numbers and see. Hit the like button, thanks to you have to. William says, so true, the best investment times are when no one is doing it. So many people are asking me about real estate right now after laughing about the idea 10 years ago. The thing is, William, by the time that everyone's on board with real estate, that's the time when it's you know, no longer attractive. It's when, exa like exactly what you said, when no one's doing it, that's the time you wanna be a pioneer. So what is no one doing, or what did everyone do last recession? Look back and say, hey, in the 90s when real estate was terrible, what were people investing their money in? Where were they investing in? So I think the key is being diversified whenever you do, because what if I'm wrong, right? What if, you know, something else happens unrelated to COVID that drives everyone back to the major metropolitans again? I don't know. COVID seems to be pushing everyone out of, and that seems like a trend that's gonna be here for, you know, long periods of time now. We don't have major sporting events anymore, as an example. Like they, they, major industries have shifted because of COVID, and so something else could happen. I had no idea COVID was going to happen, and that changed all of our plans. And so all we can do is react on the information we have now and make the best educated decision based on what we have now. And right now, I'm not interested in buying anything or investing in anything major metropolitan. Uh, it's better actually be more uh, in, in the smaller cities, to be honest, because I think people are moving out to the smaller cities where there's more affordability. Now, no one wants to live in the middle of nowhere because there aren't, there isn't infrastructure. Like, no one wants to go forever to get their groceries and go forever to get to the bank. They wanna be you know, within five or 10 minutes of all the major things that they need in their life, right? Um, so I think there's still something to be said for small towns and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think people are gonna move out. Even London, I think people are gonna move outside of the greater core and go into the suburbs and things. Yeah, once you get all everything delivered to you, it's like you don't even really need to travel. There's that too, yeah. Jonas is just uh, jumping in the stream. <laughs> That's who's in the background. My home has a second floor washer dryer with no drain in the floor. If I rent the house, should I move washer and dryer into the basement in case of flood? I mean, you could. You could just get a washer pan that would collect the water. You could put a drain in the floor too. But the washer pans work good if it overflows. You can get like a little uh, lipped washer pan. So if it overflows, you don't have any water going to the next floor. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people value having laundry on the main floor and the second floor. So getting rid of it might hurt your property value. Lisa says, Mike, I'm selling my property and everything is remodeled, but the only thing that has been changed is the fence. Should I put up a new fence? Oh, has not been changed as the fence. Should I put up a new fence before selling or just as is? Again, Lisa, I have to see the property. If, if all the neighbors have really nice fences and yours is terrible and it's an eyesore, it might make sense to do it. If your fence is decent and you're like, it, it doesn't you know, call out as you know, unordinary or you know, doesn't, doesn't attract any attention, then probably just leave it if the fence is decent enough. You might spend five, $6,000 on a fence and not get that back. It's like they'll walk in the backyard and be like, oh, that's nice. I'm not gonna pay more money for the house, but that's nice. I like it a little bit more now. Um, that and the time you're saving by having good internet too. <laughs> exactly. FutureWiz says, uh, wow, don't quit your job until you got the real estate. Yeah, I mean, 
you don't want to quit your day job until you've, well, I mean, it's up to you, I guess. Each individual is different and you could quit your day job early and then sort of grind it actively in real estate or you could pick up a side part-time job in real estate. There's lots of paths to fire. There's no one right way. Um, but yeah, I mean, now more than ever, we're in such an unstable, unstable and inconsistent times that it makes sense to have that consistent day job. Now's probably not the best time to jump off uh, and quit your job. Do you how to, uh, if you run into a situation where you've tried to purchase a home that costs 50 or 60K, but you can't find a mortgage company that will lend on properties that cost less than 75,000. I've never run into that before. Um, I've never bought a property that's that low of a purchase price. How you handle that? You'd find a lender who'd be willing to lend that small amount or go to a B lender. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you had to pay cash for the house, that would be a terrible return. You'd be looking at like an eight or 10% return. Even though the house is so small in value, your rent's gonna be low as well. And your costs, like property taxes and insurance, will be, as a percentage, very high on a small purchase price house. Typically what you'll find is that, as a percentage, uh, the property taxes and the um, utility bills are like double what they'd be on a larger house. Because if you're bringing in a thousand a month in rent, and you've got 300 a month in utilities, and you know, 100 month in taxes or whatever, then all of a sudden your cash flow has gone really quick. Uh, those, those fixed costs end up destroying you on the smaller properties. I read that the cost of residential real estate in New York City is down 25% year over year. Ouch. Because in London it's up over 20%, which is crazy. Hey Mike, cool hairstyle. <laughs> the greasy, not showered look. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. I am leaving it. It's actually pretty long, my hair right now, you guys can see. If I actually pull it down, I'm like, my hair's like here, but I, it's curly and I can kind of throw it back. Can't really tell. So for now, I've, I haven't cut my hair since the start of January, like the first day of January, I think I cut it. Hey Mike, in this uncertain cycle, apart from real estate, weather investments, do you think are good for medium term? Just need your thoughts, thanks. Um, I have to think on that question about good medium term investments. Um, Anything that cash flows would make good sense. So buying stocks that paid healthy dividends would make sense. Buying, you know, even buying real estate that does cash flow could make sense because even if values fluctuate over the next five years and you have no appreciation, at least you'd have cash flow for the next five years. Uh, investing in businesses, especially businesses that are online focused or ones that will thrive in this new post COVID era uh, would be a good place to, to park your money. So anything that's like online or anything that delivers to people or provides a service that's not physically uh, requiring contact. I'm assuming your lender and insurance are okay with it. What's the risk of purchasing a legal fourplex that doesn't meet current codes, i.e. the ESA retrofit hasn't been completed? Uh, I mean, the risk is there's liability from a tenant perspective. There's issues when you go to resell it. There might be some issues when you go to refinance it. You might have insurance issues. There are risks associated with that. So make sure you're getting a discount enough that you can afford to fix those things or at least a discount enough that it's worth your, your risk or your struggle. At my net worth level, it doesn't make sense to take those tens of properties on because the, the liability from a tenant perspective suing me uh, or suing my, my corp isn't worth uh, the headache. So I'm just, I'm not looking at those kinds of properties anymore. Okay, Yona says it's time. It is time, it's 43 minutes. Mike made a video, how often it's not favorable to own real estate in a corp. You don't have an active job. Wouldn't it be beneficial to pay yourself to the corp for loan purposes? Darren, you need uh, two years of income tax returns on your corp and paying yourself uh, in order to ha be able to use that. So you'd, you'd be several years out paying yourself in a corp to get financing. So we're talking years out from a planning perspective. Um, 
from a tax perspective, owning real estate passively in a corp doesn't make sense. You don't get tax advantage because you're taxed in the top marginal bracket here in Ontario and Canada. So if you're make, not in the top marginal bracket on your personal side, it's way cheaper to own the properties personally. But there are conditions where it makes sense. Flipping, as an example, only makes sense in a corp. I only flip in a corp. I buy and hold my personal name. Hey Mike, just bought my first student rental. Uh, Vincent says, you and Matt McKeever inspired me. I was at your class for IV Wealth Management. Oh, thanks Vincent, appreciate that. Congratulations. Um, you have to send me a message about that property. Mike, you made a video half and it's not, I did that question. Thanks for your time, have a good evening. Um, the nine to five jobs sound more risky to me. If the job can be done remotely, then it could also be outsourced overseas. That's true, the nine to five is risky and jobs inherently are risky. Hey Mike, uh, would it be possible to, for OSAP to get approved for a mortgage before I finish school and have to pay back the OSAP? Likely not, it's gonna be very difficult with uh, OSAP and debt to as well qualify for a mortgage. The chances are very slim with any A lender, but a B lender might take you on. Hey Mike, what advice would you have for a young person with an upcoming insurance settlement who's looking to invest in passive income? Declan, look into, well, it depends how much money you're coming into, but there's definitely opportunities where you could buy rental properties or probably just invest private in private mortgages. You go fund a flipper, secure against their properties and get a 12% return. If it's a million bucks, you're looking at 120 grand a year, 10 grand a month. So there's lots of ways to generate passive income just by putting that money to work and be safe about it. You know, go 70, 80% loan to value. Reach out to me, I'll, I'll help you put that money to work. I can give you some tips anyway, at least, or point you in the direction of people I know who want to borrow or whatever. If I can help, cool. If not, let me know how it goes in the YouTube channel and jump in the comments. What about buying land up north and clearing an area for a cottage and creating a road, increasing the value, is that worth it? I don't know, you have to run the numbers. It's so situational. And Jal says, uh, hi Mike, how have you been? I've been good, thank you for asking. All right, everyone, I gotta wrap these streams up. Even me trying to be in the 35 minute range ended up going into the 45 minute range. So this has been a great stream. Thank you all so much for watching. I wanna see if I missed your question, I wanna see you after the video's done, you jump in the comments, put the question there for me to answer instead of in my Instagram. If I do it on Instagram, no one else gets to see it except for you. Please put it in the comments of the YouTube video so I can respond for everyone. I like to respond to all the questions. And I like that when my comment, my viewers go on the comment channel, go on the video, click on the channel, and see you know my long-winded comments there for everyone to enjoy. So the secret to unlocking a wealth through you, three levers. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns in that order of importance. And once you have wealth, it is flipped. And it's all about maximizing the returns. So depending where you're at in your journey, you're gonna either try to maximize your returns or you're gonna focus, if you're just getting started, on how to earn more money and how to spend a lot less and save it. Anyway, thank you everyone for watching and I'll see you next week. Abundance mindset, everyone. Scarcity mindset for the win. Spend less. If you're at the start of your journey, if you're just getting started and you have less than 150,000 net worth, you better have a scarcity mindset. That's it, that's all I gotta say. Then after that, you can elevate to the abundance mindset. Seriously, save your money, folks.